Welcome to the Mojo Rising podcast, where I, Julie Stevens, reveal the most powerful ways to make cancer suck less. I was diagnosed on June 14, 2022, with stage four aggressive, inoperable, and chemo-resistant colon cancer with a 14% chance of survival. By using data and the very best of conventional and traditional healing to guide my holistic approach, I was able to fully heal my stage four colon cancer in nine months. If I would have followed the standard of care offered by most American oncologists, I would be dead. I created this podcast to share everything I've learned to help you have the most enjoyable, efficient, and effective healing journey possible. If you or someone you care about is a newly diagnosed cancer patient, this is the podcast for you. For more information and to access the resources we've built for patients to make cancer suck less, please go to mojohealth.org and become a member of the Mojo Movement. Now it's time to get your Mojo Rising. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Mojo Rising, How to Make Cancer Suck Less. You're joined today, of course, by Julie Stevens and Oscar Sierra, and we're really excited to share with you a little bit about why I am still alive today, and that is because I am a data G. You didn't know what a data G was before today, but I'm going to go ahead and explain this for you. It is a data gatherer. And being a data G has saved my life not once, not twice, but three times in the last year. So I quickly wanted to share with you why being a data G is so important and why d- being a data gatherer is in your best interest. So as you guys heard in the, la- in the first podcast episode, my cancer, I had no symptoms, no family history, no reason to believe I had it. I was under 45, um, so I was under the recommended screening age. So it was kind of a complete shock that I'd had cancer. The only reason I knew to even get some testing was because I'm a data G and I go every year to my primary care physician to get baseline blood level tests done so that we can see if there's any indicators of change. And for me, for the diagnosis last June, it showed that I had low iron for the first time in my life. So it was indicated there's something going on that we weren't quite sure in my body, but that's what led me to go to my gastroenterologist. My gastro three times. Times his office said, Julie, you do not need a colonoscopy. You're under 45. You have no family history. You have no reason to believe this is cancer. Let's just do an upper endoscopy to find out why you have low iron. And I said, nope, I'm a data gal. I'm a data G. I really want to get this test. I'm really willing to do the prep. I understand it's miserable, but it's worth it for me. Let's go ahead and do the colonoscopy. And thank God I did because my gastro woke me up by saying, you have a tumor so big we can't get the infant size camera to the other side. So that's number two when being a data G saved my life. And number three was when my very first oncologist came in after I found out that the cancer had spread and it was an eight of eight, uh, 61 lymph nodes. They also were worried it was perhaps in a distant spot up in my neck, which it turned out to be. And so they wanted to do six months of chemotherapy. Um, and then at the end, they were going to do a PET scan. And my reaction to that was to say, heck no. Actually, I went into fetal position, started crying and said I was never going to do conventional medicine. That was my real reaction. But it took me a minute to decide, nope, I just need to find a different way to be a data G. Enter Oscar Sierra. So as you guys may have remembered from our first story, I went to see Oscar in a search because I was unwilling to do chemotherapy the way the standard of care predicates, which is six months of chemotherapy and then testing for a lagging indicator. Instead, I wanted to find what we call leading indicators. And a leading indicator is a predictive measurement. For example, the percentage of people wearing hard hats on a building site is a leading safety indicator. 
So it's something you can look at to predict things versus a lagging indicator, which is an output measurement or the number of accidents that were on a building site. So I wanted to find those leading indicators that would help me understand, is the treatment working? Is my cancer growing or reducing? Versus waiting until the lagging indicator that showed, is the tumor bigger? So that's what brought me to Oscar Sierra's office the very first day. And Oscar, I walked into your office and the very first question you said is, why are you here? And I said, because I'm a data G. And you said. I said, you've come to the right place because I'm all about the data. And that was like music to my ears because of the first time I realized I was going to meet someone that was willing to be as dorky about data as I was. And, and the thing I asked you was all about that, that leading indicator data. How can I track if this is working or not working? So here, will you share with our audience a little bit about what they could do or what you said or what ideas are so we can track treatment efficacy and still, instead of waiting until the end to understand if it worked or didn't work? Well, first I want to say that um, Julie Stevens is not just a data G as in a data gatherer, but the fact that she used that data that she gathered and I gathered thought about it critically and implemented it to a successful outcome, I think makes her a data gangsta, not just a data gatherer. So I, we, I think should recommend people to be, you know, use the G in all the ways to be a gangsta about it and, uh, and use the data for, you know, not just, not just gather it, but, but really put it into their playbook in a smart and intelligent way for the outcome that you want. I'm pretty sure Oscar Sierra just redefined what a data G is. It's no longer a data gatherer. It's now a data gangster. Okay, continue. All right. So, um, and yeah, I, I think you were really surprised at one point when you said, uh, you know, how many people come into your office and, you know, their, their first appointment say that, that the reason they're there is to gather data. And I look back on all the cancer patients that I've worked with, which, you know, I've been over a hundred and um, and I really, I can't think of a single person that has come in with that specific, you know, right off the bat goal. People say, "Oh, I want to, I want to be here for my granddaughter's this or that," or you know, which is all well and good, but but no one really historically has come in with that explicit want. So. Yeah, anyway, you were talking my language because I'm all about the data and I, I, you know, I don't ever say, hey, I'm going to make you live forever. Or I'm going to make this cancer go away. I'm just going to say I'm going to help implement something really intelligent based on information that we can gather from a low tech way as far as well as a high tech way. So uh, so the data. OK, so what is the data? Right. So in the most global way, there's always a yin and a yang. Right. So kind of divided into two data about the person, the host, the person who has the um, the hepatitis, the cancer, the hangnail, whatever, you know, how are they doing from a low tech way as to what does their pulse feel like? Is their tongue pale or is it red or their eyeballs and eyelids red or, or, or pale or jaundice is the pulse strong or weak or deep or thin or superficial or whatever. And more, uh, objective ways, you know, how hard can you squeeze, how many pounds per square inch can you squeeze a thing? Or, you know, what's your blood work say about you, not necessarily your cancer. So answering the question, you know, how are you? What, what do you bench? What's your zero to 60 meter dash look like? Um, so that's one way of assessing what's up, right? Gathering some mostly objective data. 
in subjective as well. Like, oh, I feel tired. Or how tired? How tired do you feel? Where does it hurt? And how badly does it hurt? You know, is it worse at night? So that's one really maybe the most important part is gathering data about the host, which everyone obsesses about the cancer, which is understandable because it freaks people out. But the reality, as Nisha Winter says, is that the majority of your cells at any given point, even with a stage four fully metastasized cancer, are not cancer cells. They are, you know, in this case, Julie cells or uh, Mike cells or, you know, Carlos cells or whatever. So let's first and foremost concern ourselves with those cells. And yes, let's also concern ourselves with the second side of the equation, which is the cancer. And there are several ways to assess what's up with the cancer. The most uh, common way is to take a picture, right? To see how big is it and where exactly is it? So, you know, maybe there's something around your neck and there was a, you know, eight point whatever centimeter tumor located anterior to this, posterior to that, lateral to this other thing. Okay, that's all useful information, but it tells us what happened. It doesn't really uh, clue us in as to what is happening and what are the circumstances that are making this happen. So uh, on the cancer side of things, there is tumor markers and there are conventional tumor markers like CEA for colon cancer. And that is often checked. It's, I would like to say it's always checked, but the, the sad truth is that a lot of times people just jump right into treatment without getting a baseline tumor marker. Now, there are other tumor markers that you can check in the blood to see what the score is on the cancer. CA199 is one. Uh, there are other kind of unofficial ones like LDH, lactic acid dehydrogenase. There's a Signatera test, which is a brand name of a circulating tumor cell DNA test. Uh, there will probably be other brands of the similar type of technology, which kind of count how many tumor cells are circulating in your blood at any given moment. So for every thousand good cells, is there two uh, cancer cells or are there, you know, 150 cancer cells? That can kind of give you an idea as to what the score is on the cancer. So there's a variety of ways to assess, you know, where you are with the cancer and you don't want to be doing PET scans, CT scans, or MRIs all the time because they're stressful, they're somewhat toxic, uh, they cause cancer. So, you know, you want to you want to keep an eye on things and gather the data in a way that doesn't actually cause harm, uh, which is basically. You know, so I think it's really interesting um, the story of how I use data and how I had to advocate for myself because you just mentioned two different things: CEA, which is the typical tumor market for. Um, colon cancer, which is, of course, is what I had. But for me, CA199 was what was elevated. And when I, we were tracking this after my first chemotherapy, and you said to me, Julie, your CA199 is larger than it was before. I'm a little worried. There's two reasons. You've either got some dust in your body and the cancer just happens to be bigger on the day we collected blood or chemo is not working. So let's do one more chemo session and let's see. Um, and then we may have to opt, ask if we can uh, pivot to option B which was such a kind way because it's a pretty scary thing to realize the drug that's supposed to work for everyone doesn't work for you. So you did it in a really nice way of letting data drive our, our, our approach. But after my second chemotherapy session, when we realized without a doubt that the cancer um, was increasing in my body, I went to my oncologist at the time and I shared this and his reaction was, CN189 is not that great of a marker. We're not really worried. Let's just keep going. And if I wouldn't have said, no, I'm unwilling to keep going, you have to disprove my hypothesis that chemotherapy is 
not is I'm chemo resistant. So pull whatever test you would like to pull. And then he did the PET scan and he was like, oh, it's all over your body. This is not good. So I think it's interesting that not only did you help me identify how to track the data, you helped me understand and break the news so that I could really action and advocate for myself in a really positive way and was so data confident that I could be so bold to say to my doctor, you have to prove to me I'm going to come back in for a third chemo session. And for me, thank God, I was so bold and willing to do that because that's the difference between me, frankly, having chemotherapy tear up the insides of my body by adding so much toxicity and probably letting the cancer go so far that I couldn't catch it. So that that this data is the difference in my living and dying. So A, thank you, Oscar, for teaching me this and saving my life. But B, is is this typical where patients would have to basically advocate for themselves to use that sort of data instead of just PET scans? Unfortunately, that's the case. And that's the call to action to both patients and providers is to gather more data, first and foremost, about the patient, right? So even, even if they had all the information in the world about the cancer, if this patient is not going to tolerate whatever treatment is on the table, whether it be dancing, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, or whatever, because the host is not prepared. The person is not prepared for that therapy. They have an inborn genetic error to have an extra toxicity to that therapy, whatever it is, right? There is ways to assess this, how you gather data. You simply, you know, I remember in school, um, when they taught about uh, CPR or whatever, you first, you know, before you start giving CPR, rescue breathing or whatever, you first survey the scene to see if like, okay, is there spilt gasoline that's about to catch on fire, you know, before you like approach the, the scene, right? So like, it's just like, it's a no brainer. You first survey the scene, you first just get data 360 degrees about yourself, about your doctor, about your your cancer, about your magnesium levels, about your inflammation levels, about your sugar and hemoglobin A1C levels, your lactic acid dehydrogenase, your urinary pH, your grip strength, your how much you bench, whatever. You just, you know, gather some relevant data and you get some baselines and then you try some stuff. And that could be singing, dancing, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, immunotherapy, prayer, medit whatever. And then you, you assess the situation again. This is just you know, blows my mind that like I, uh, uh, Wikipedia just looked up my sister and her baby, uh, or about her baby, my niece is sick, and and they looked up on Wikipedia, you know, some stuff about some alternative and complementary medicine that I recommended for the congestion, and Wikipedia is, is notoriously horribly biased, and um, and it just says awful and untrue, horrible things about any any herb or alternative or integrative medicine. And, uh, and it, it, it makes such statements as that it's not based on the scientific theory and, and kind of the whole scientific thinking, which is complete load of crap. Like, yes, it is. We assess stuff just because it may not necessarily be CEA. Maybe we also assess CA 199 or a pulse or how much do you bench? And then we try some stuff and then you see, can you bench more? Can you run faster, jump higher? Are you as a host stronger and is your cancer as a pathogenic influence weaker? And you assess that using as much data as possible. You don't put blinders on and, and myopically just look at one thing. Uh, and that's the, to, to the doctor's defense, 
um, they, you know, when you ask them, well, why don't you check the CA99 and why don't you check the lactic acid dehydrogenase and why don't you check the, and put weight into the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio. And their defense is a valid one. And it's that sometimes these are not uniquely representative of the cancer. That is to say that maybe they can reflect some other circumstantial evidence and phenomenon that's going on in the host. And that is, that is partially true. But when you when you combine a CA199 with a neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, with the Signatera, with a um, a CEA, you know you've you've got enough. It's no longer circumstantial evidence. You've got enough clues to convict at this point, and and you saved yourself from having to do a PET CT scan because that actually you know causes some harm, not just inconvenience. It's pretty uh, it's pretty easy. And not so inconvenient to do a simple blood test. I mean, it's not fun, but it's a lot less of a pain in the butt than uh, than, than being in a tube with an MRI or a CT scan getting blasted with radiation, which causes harm. And I think it's important to say something real quick. I thought I was getting the right blood test before my doctor was giving me a chemotherapy infusion. But the tests that they're looking for when they're before infusion are really to make sure that your body can handle the treatment they're about to give you. And basically, they're not going to get sued. These are not blood tests to measure your core health. So the tests that they give you before your treatment are simply not enough. That is a great indicator of that your body can receive medicine, not a great indicator of either health or of cancer burden. So just wanted to make sure you understood those tests are not sufficient. Or, or they're not ind indicative or predictive of outcomes with regards to efficacy of chemotherapeutic treatment. They're just indicative of whether you're likely to be alive after they give you the treatment. That's it. They're not saying it's going to work. They're just exactly. saying that you're not going to, you know, keel over dead in their infusion ward, but, which is good. You know, so I'm, I'm fully supportive of running those tests, but let's just be honest about what they do and don't measure. So one of the interesting things that I found when I started to ask doctors for different blood tests that we had discussed was they said no. And I had a good enough relationship with most of my doctors to dig in a little bit at why. And the reason I consistently heard was, we just don't know how to read that test. So we're not going to pull an assessment we don't know how to read. So I thought that was also something, but it made me think of, and, and I wanted to pose this question to you. Do you think that's why doctors, frankly, use lagging indicators like PET or CT scans as indicators versus these le leading indicators, is it just familiarity and that's what they learned in med school? Yeah, partially. Uh, now, different question is, is that an excuse? No, it's not an excuse. Just because you don't know about it, especially if it's in your field, doesn't mean that you're excused to not knowing about it or, or utilizing it. And, and again, we're not talking about solely relying on one marker as a criteria to base your, you know, do I do this chemo or that chemo or this dose or that dose or surgery or radiation or chemo or immunotherapy? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being a data G. We're talking about gathering the preponderance of evidence, right? And to see, okay, the lactic acid is baseline this, the inflammation is baseline that, the host is not just ready to accept chemo in a way that she's not going to die the next day or or week after the chemo, but but you know, are they strong? Not just are they alive, are they thriving? And and if not, how can we get them thriving? Yes, we want to get them strong enough for chemo, but more importantly, we want to get them thriving. So 
it's a more comprehensive analysis of data. It's not what a lot of oncologists assume that you're talking about is, oh, well, I don't want to base my treatment strategy based on one sole marker. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the preponderance of evidence. We're talking about triangulating data, just like a surveyor might triangulate data to, to get something real. So more data, more better. Agreed. As a data gangster, I agree. Okay, so let's, you mentioned something earlier and I didn't stop you to ask this question, so I need to stop you now. You talked about toxicity. So let's talk a little bit about the relative toxicity of different diagnostics. So what is kind of the least toxic measures that you use versus the most toxic measures that you could be asked to use? Okay, that's a good question. So from the, the least invasive and least toxic is, is asking someone over the phone, hey, how you doing? You tired? Okay, so that's you know good subjective evidence and data gathering to um, more towards the objective side is checking a pulse. Is it strong or weak? Is it deep or thin? And all these things in, within the realm of Chinese medicine and from what I hear, Ayurvedic medicine can tell us something. It's kind of like the old fashioned PET CT scan and blood work. You know, we, it's the marquee, as to who's playing inside the Georgia theater without having to, you know, pay the, the cover charge to go check it out. It's, uh, it's, it's the signs and symptoms on the outside, including signs being pulse, tongue, and eyes. So are they red? Are they pale? You know, whatever that, that you can, you can gather information on this, right? If the power grid goes off and we don't no longer have the ability to, to use electronics and run, uh, blood work and, you know, light bills, Guess what? People still have pulses and they still have tongues and they still have eyeballs. And so they can, and they have fingertips. So you can still put your fingertips on someone else's pulse, you know, old fashioned like doctors used to do and feel stuff and smell things and look at things and, and get a pretty good sense as to what's up with the person. Now, you don't have a great sense for what's up with the cancer with these things. You have a good sense for what's up with the person. So that's pretty low tech and, and non-invasive and safe. The next level would be blood work. Or maybe I would even say urine and saliva. So you can get a pretty good idea as to what's going on in the oral microbiome. And a lot of these beasties in the oral microbiome are associated. And um, probably you're going to see that they're causative, not just associated with uh, cancers, because they're found to be causative with heart disease now, not just associated. Um, uh, the stool, the urine, these are these are great ways to assess kind of the same thing. It's the marquee as to what's, you know, what's going on inside the show, who's playing. It's, it's on the marquee. Check it out. Read it. Just because you don't know how to read it doesn't mean that it's not there. So urine, stool, saliva, blood work, um, the blood work to assess you know, inflammation, uh, nutrient levels. You want to go into these scenarios with cancer, especially conventional medicine, rocking, not just you know, kind of sort of maintaining. So it, sometimes it just takes a, a couple weeks or even a week to get these numbers looking great so that you go into it looking great. And then when you go through the conventional surgery or radiation or, or, uh, chemo, you take a hit, but you, you start at 10 and you go down to eight rather than starting at seven and going down to five. I, I use one of the blood tests that you recommended earlier, the CTDNA, the Signatera. Um, so when I was at a real moment of panic and, and misery in my journey was when I knew that the chemotherapy wasn't working. I'd started the immunotherapy, but we didn't have any data on if it was working or not. And so there was a weekend where I, I couldn't stop crying. And I thought like the, the survival rates that they gave me a 14% chance, I thought that was real. 
And so I had a really hard time getting up and getting my head in the game for work the next day. And so it was a Monday morning and I was like, how can I get out of this tailspin? I can't, I can't stop the feeling of dread and the feeling of I'm going to be dead soon. And so I was able to, I realized we had taken a Signatera a week before and that measures the the tumor cell particles in your blood. So not even the whole cell, but the particles. And we were able to pull that data and we found out I'd gone from over 100 to 12 with after one uh, immunotherapy session. So that's one of the ways that I used just a very easy blood test to totally change my mental game and get myself back into life when I was so scared about cancer. So sorry, I just wanted to tell a quick story about how I used that to really shift my story. Hey, it's the scientific method. How about that? You know, answering the basic question, is it working? Yeah. And answering a basic question, you know, what's up with the patient? And a basic question, what's up with the cancer? What's the score? Yeah. You want to see the patient score get better and the cancer score get worse. And I mean, this is pretty fundamental logic. For sure. But anyway, I interrupted you when you were talking about imaging. That's it. So basically from the low tech of, you know, tongue and pulse and eyes and asking questions, that's non-invasive and very safe. And doesn't require that much training to, you know, a little bit more invasive is blood work because you get a needle stuck in you. Uh, I guess what less invasive than that is, is peeing or pooping and spitting in a cup. And, um, and then the most invasive would be, uh, imaging because you get zapped with, with radiation and an MRI is even not really healthy because of electromagnetic fields that it kind of disrupts the harmonics of the body. And there's going to be more research coming out on that, but anyhow, and then maybe the most invasive would be a biopsy or exploratory surgery where they literally cut you open. It's like, you know, busting a hole in the side of the Georgia theater, uh, in Athens, Georgia uh, to see, Oh, who's playing on stage? You know, well, they were playing until, you know, Mr. Kool-Aid man busted through the wall and, and disrupted their, their second set. Um, so it's, you know, do you get to see who's on stage? Yes. But do you create a whole lot of damage and dust? Yes, you do. So I think everyone is in agreement with the first, you know, kind of tenant of medicine is first do no harm. So if you can get away with it, just because you can do a biopsy or a surgery doesn't mean you need to. And if you can get away with it, gather information in the least invasive way possible and gather as much as you can about both the person, the host, and the pathologic thing, be it a cancer or a hepatitis or a hangnail or, you know, a bacteria, whatever. I just was talking with a friend who was, um, had some fears around breast cancer yesterday afternoon. And, um, you know, they said they wanted, they want to open me up and they want to take a piece of my breast. And I said, well, have they checked to see if you have any of the blood markers in your blood yet? And she goes, no. And I was like, I certainly wouldn't have them open me up to take a piece of my breast until they've looked at everything they can from a needle first. So it's one of those things like, let's just slow down the process a little bit before we do X that really could create damage or, 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 or harm in my body and see what we can get from the, or from the least toxic di not diagnostics possible. And that was one of the things when I went for a PET scan and they said, you really shouldn't be around small children for 24 to 48 hours. That freaked me out. What do you mean you just put radioactive isotopes in my body and I shouldn't be around small children? Like, how is this something that we're going to keep doing to my body? And that was what my doctor wanted to wait after six months of chemotherapy to do. So it's a big wake up call that like even the tests they're using may not be the best for you. So ask and advocate for yourself to get as many diagnostics that are of the least toxicity possible. Okay, Oscar, I know we don't have that much time left, but 
Talk to us a little bit about what the most recent research is around some of these leading and lagging indicators. Oh, wow. Well, the, the whole, you know, ctDNA thing is really emerging and it's, I think, going to become standard of care. It's a, it's a horrible embarrassment that it takes how many years for the, the, what do they call it? The rate of translation before, you know, something, you know, we figure out that the world is round and then, you know, X number of years later, you know, globes are made and, and, and people kind of acknowledge the fact that the world is round. Uh, what are they, uh, what is it now, Julie? Oh, 17 years for something Seven. to become standard of care. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's embarrassing and ridiculous. You know, the internet has happened. Emails have happened. It doesn't, it doesn't take, you know, years to, to sign a piece of paper and put it on a boat and, and mail it to, you know, somewhere else, you know, we can, we can transfer information a lot faster than that. So it's embarrassing that, that it takes that long. So, but, so it's not standard of care to run, you know, all the tumor markers. It's not standard of care to run all of the nutritional markers. It's not standard of care to look at the, the signatory type tests, like the circulating tumor cells or the circulating tumor cell DNA. Um, but there's more and more doctors that are opening their eyes to the fact that this is solid. It has research behind it. You don't have a whole lot to lose. It doesn't cost very much. Uh, you know, are you going to hang your hat on this one blood test? Not necessarily. Are you going to use your brain and, and gather the preponderance of evidence to, to make a conviction one way or the other? Hopefully. So, um, there's going to be a lot more data coming down on, on ctDNA. Um, there are, um, and who knows what else? I mean, the, the, the new one is the Galeri test, right? Which is a super expensive test that is somewhat controversial, not just because it's about a thousand bucks to run, but it, it can detect cancer before a biopsy. And, um, and then the question is, well, you know, do you, who do you run this on? Right. And then what do you do with the information? Uh, there's a new one coming down the pike that, that might cost a fraction of that, maybe for under four or 500 bucks that, you know, if someone has like a family history of pancreatic cancer, which can be a very severe cancer and very aggressive, um, yeah, okay, maybe run this test. Do I recommend running this test for everyone in America? Probably not, because they would probably jump into something stupid, like, uh, you know, radiation or invasive biopsies uh, or aggressive treatment that may not be appropriate, even if they did have that cancer, right? And, and so the question is, A, you know, is it 100% accurate and precise? The answer is no. And the answer is no test is 100% accurate and precise, which is why we're talking about, Julie, getting, being a data G and gathering more than one clue, you know, uh, uh, getting the preponderance of evidence. So A, don't hang your hat on one marker, whatever it is, you know, some fortune teller telling you that you have cancer or the Galeri test or a tumor marker. I would even say a biopsy. I have seen biopsies be wrong. I had a, a breast cancer case who did a biopsy and they thought it was cancer. And then they found out later it wasn't. So, you know, there's a margin error for all these things. And, and again, begets the the 360 degree, the more data, more better. Uh, so, you know, A, with these new tests of like people that don't have diagnosed cancer yet and confirmed cancer, you know, is it 100%? No. And B, even if it was, what then? You know, are you going to go get your boobs chopped off? Are you going to get your leg chopped off? Are you going to get your pancreas cut off? 
I don't know that I would jump to those things. I would, as you said, you know, start with the least invasive. Well, what, when you said that, it made me think of my martial arts training. So, you know, I earned my black belt in martial arts and, and within the tenant that we agreed to within martial arts, because we were taught very lethal techniques and, um, and we trained in them and there's great power and confidence in knowing that if I had to, I could really not just defend myself, but I could go off and probably do a lot of harm to someone that is doing some harm to someone else because of whatever ethical or unethical means I have the, the, the know-how to, to really cause some harm, but just because I can doesn't mean I should. So in the tenants, it said, you know, if I can maim a man instead of kill them, then do that. If I can, you know, knock someone out instead of maiming them, then do that. If I can, you know, break a finger instead of knocking them out, then do that. If I can just kind of calm someone down instead of, you know, physically harming them, then do that. If I can avoid an altercation and, and violence altogether, then do that, right? So just because you have the tools to do surgery, biopsies, chemo, radiation, and, and strong heroic medicine, which is not bad. I'm not saying killing is bad. I'm just saying if you can avoid it, do. And, and what and, and so we need to have the tools to have more gentle, humane, and humble medicine to employ rather than, you know, flamethrowers and anvils and, you know, atomic bombs. Oh, Oscar, I truly just want to wrap up this state, this, this podcast by once again saying thank you for saving my life. Thank you for teaching me how to be a data gangster instead of just a data gatherer um, and really, truly helping me at get the research and the knowledge to advocate for myself to make sure I was getting the very best care. So first off, thank you. And thank you for dropping all of these knowledge bombs on our listeners as well. We have two follow-up podcasts that'll be coming up that I think you'll be interested in if you like this one. Um, the first is on how I was taught to use genomic data um, to help build my strategy and what having that data did um, in order to understand what would, would and would not work from a conventional medicine perspective. So we're going to do a whole uh, podcast specifically on that one topic. But you also mentioned something else earlier, and that is about how certain genes are expressed. And so I wanted to give a quick update that we will be doing a podcast with another one of our Mojo Health co-founders, um, Katie, to talk about her expression and her her learning about gene expression through her own experience, which was pretty pretty uh, um, pretty tough, to be honest. So we'll have two podcasts that follow on to this Be a Data G, and it is about our genomic data and about gene expression. Oscar, just to wrap this up, thank you so much for the information you've shared. I hope that all of our listeners will take heed. There will be a variety of different resources available on our website under the Be a Data G tag including a website of almost uh, from from the from cancer.gov that's all the different biomarkers you can potentially use in your blood to help predict cancer activity but as as Oscar shared it's not just cancer activity it's health activity that we really need to be focused on so from all of us at Mojo Health thank you so much for listening we're so grateful for you
Disclaimer, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Mojo Health Cooperative, LLC, a Georgia limited liability company, its respective officers, directors, employees, agents, or representatives. This podcast is presented by Mojo Health Cooperative and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only and not intended to supplant the expert advice and or consultation of a medical doctor and or a licensed physician and or an attorney. In short, this podcast is not intended to replace professional medical advice nor legal advice. The Mojo Health name and all forms and abbreviation are the property of its owner and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Again, none of the content of this podcast should be considered legal advice nor medical advice. As always, consult a lawyer and or a licensed physician in lieu of relying upon the advice of any of the participants of this podcast. The host or hosts of this podcast are not licensed lawyers, physicians, doctors of osteopath, nor medical doctors in any jurisdiction anywhere. The hosts of this podcast do not practice medicine and do not profess to be able to do any of the following. One, diagnose, heal, treat, prevent, prescribe, or removing any physical, mental, or emotional ailment or supposed ailment of any individual. Two, engage in the end of human pregnancy. Three, treat human ailments. Nor four, perform acupuncture. Mojo Health Cooperative LLC is not responsible for any loss damages or liabilities that may arise from the use of this podcast thank you so much for joining us today if you enjoyed the ideas shared here please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five-star review on itunes and spotify please share this episode with anyone you think could benefit from the knowledge bomb we just dropped on you you can find short video clips of the best moments from this episode at mojohealth.org and on facebook instagram tiktok and youtube at mojohealth.org for more information and to access the resources we've built for patients to make cancer suck less please go to mojohealth.org and become a member of the Mojo Movement. Thanks everyone for listening and we hope this episode has got your Mojo rising.